Well, good morning. I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai the prophet. It is near the end of the Old Testament for those who are not familiar with its location. Uh, after Zephaniah, before Zechariah, relatively few Christians uh, today are very acquainted with the Old Testament minor prophets. This book and others like it are sadly treated as if they were of minor importance, but that's not why they're called the minor prophets. Uh, they are just as important as the major prophets. They are just uh, shorter and reduced in size and uh, particularly the ministry, the scope of the ministry of these prophets uh, was not as great as the other ones. But even though this book doesn't receive that much attention or is not as regarded as other books by many today, I can assure you that there are storehouses of treasures to be found in this book, Haggai, and uh, the other minor prophets, of course. But uh, specifically looking at this book, this is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. But I can guarantee you that it packs a lot of punch. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, the entire first chapter right now, and I, I would ask you to bear with me as I read and ask the Lord to speak to your heart as I read these words. It says here, starting with verse 1, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed... It came too little. And when you brought it home, <clears throat> I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second, second year of King Darius. If... The Lord were to speak to us today, if we were to receive a message as a church right now, if Jesus Christ himself were to come, draw near to us and give us his message for Community Baptist Church, 
What do you think he would say? If we were to receive a message, just like Jesus gave the message to the churches in the book of Revelation, what would his message be? What do you think? You know, reading the book of Revelation, one of the things that seems to pop out, at least to me, is the repeated phrase, I know your works. I know your works. Now, we who have experienced the grace of God, the infinite, glorious, amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ, may be quick to point out what that phrase doesn't mean, right? It obviously doesn't mean that we somehow merit our salvation. We somehow gain God's acceptance through our works. But what does it refer to? What does it mean? Well, in short, it means that our lives are exposed before the Lord. He sees our lives. He sees our pattern of behavior. He sees our words, our actions. Jesus Christ, the one with eyes like a flame of fire, who can see, who can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. He sees what his church is doing. And not only what his church is doing, why they are doing it. And we, we have a, a similar message here from God. On behalf of the Lord of glory, on behalf of the Lord of hosts, to his covenant people. Even though he doesn't say it with the exact words, that is, in short, what he is telling but people, I know your works. Now, this expression, I know your works, can either be a comfort or a rebuke to you, depending on the state of your heart, right? But here in this text, God comes to his people through his prophet. And God points out their consistent pattern of life, their conduct, and what their conduct is evincing, what it is evidencing from their hearts. God draws back the curtain, if you will, of their hearts, and he reveals what's inside. Though these are an outwardly religious people, and they would never outright deny the Lord, they would never outright blaspheme the Lord, their outward pattern of life leaves much to be desired. These are a very zealous and a very busy people. But unfortunately, it's not a zealousness or a busyness for the Lord's glory. Now, I have to give some context in case you are not familiar with what's going on here, in case you didn't understand what's going on here in this point of the story. Our story here in Haggai takes place uh, during post-exilic times, meaning the times of Israel after the exile, after they were exiled to Babylon. Now let me go back even further to Moses. God rescues his people Israel from Egypt. They are not officially his people in terms of the covenant. But God rescues them from, from Egypt and he makes a covenant with them at Sinai and this covenant, which we now call the Old Covenant, we can call the Mosaic Covenant, this covenant includes blessings and cursings, right? Basically, if God's people were to have obeyed the Lord, listened to the words of the covenant, they would have been blessed and prosperous in the land, the land that the Lord was going to bring them to, the promised land of Canaan. However, if they disobeyed, if they rebelled against their covenant Lord, they would have been cursed. And everything they did would have been cursed. And you can read about it in passages like Deuteronomy 28. It's a fearful passage where God describes all the curse, thoroughly describes in detail how their lives would be, how they would not prosper in anything, and they would end up being conquered by their enemies. It's a horrifying passage. 
they would have been exiled for their disobedience. And that's exactly what ends up happening in the history of Israel. Because of their utter wickedness and covenant breaking, the nation is taken captive. You can read about that in Second Kings and also in Second Chronicles. And by this point in history, the nation is divided into two. We have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel fell into exile, or Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century. And they were wiped out for good. They were never to be a nation again. And the southern kingdom of Judah completely fell to Babylon in the 6th century. There was a series of sieges and captivities, and uh, the city of Jerusalem, along with the temple, were utterly destroyed. The temple was burned and destroyed. Most of the Jews were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And according to the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah, they would spend 70 years in captivity. There would be 70 years of captivity, and afterward they would return to the land according to the prophet's according to what God spoke through prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Especially in the book of Isaiah, we see a wonderful promise that God would raise up a king to rescue the Jews from exile, from captivity. And it wasn't a Jewish king. It wasn't a king that was part of the covenant. It was a pagan king. In Isaiah 44 and 45, we have the prophecies of Cyrus, And these prophecies were written and spoken 150 years before the birth of Cyrus. And Cyrus is spoken of by name. It is a prophecy supernaturally given by God. Only God can give us the future. Of course, nowadays, many liberal scholars don't want to believe that. And so they assign to that part of uh, of Isaiah, you know, uh, a later date because they refuse to believe what's clearly there. A prophecy that was fulfilled. But Cyrus was a ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire and they conquered Babylon and so they inherited all these Jews and God stirred up his heart to take the people back to the land and to rebuild uh, not only Jerusalem but the temple. And God says through, through Isaiah that he would lay the foundation of the temple. He would be responsible for the laying of the foundation of the temple. And so Cyrus decrees that the people should go back He ends up sending about 50,000 people, 50,000 of the Jews back into the the land from which they were exiled. And he sends them with an abundance of treasures and resources to begin building. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra. And the people are at first euphoric. They are rejoicing. After so long. After so many decades, they were able to return. And so this temple reconstruction project gets going almost immediately. And they managed to set up the foundation of the temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. And in Ezra chapter 4, we read about something else that happened. Not long after that, this project of temple reconstruction abruptly stops. It comes to a grinding halt. And this for about 15 years. What happened? Well, in a word, discouragement. The neighboring peoples, some of which would be later known as the Samaritans, opposed the Jews and they sought to discourage them from building. They made them afraid with threats. They bribed the authorities against them. And in light of such opposition and hostility, the Jews grew discouraged and decided that the building of God's house wasn't worth their hardships. And so they ceased to build. And why now, in case you're wondering, why was it so important to rebuild the temple? Well, the temple of God was the center of the very life of Israel. It was their sacred space. This is where God would dwell among his people in a special way. This is where God would meet his people. This is where they would come to worship, offer sacrifices, call upon the name of the Lord. This is where the Levitical priest would minister unto the Lord. And this temple represented their covenant relationship with God. What did a ruined temple say about their relationship to God? 
Furthermore, the, the prophets had prophesied that the Messiah would be linked with the temple. So no temple, no Messiah. The temple also represented the messianic hope. Yet the people remained in apathy and complacency for a decade and a half. Cyrus came and went. His son came and went. This other king, Darius, or Darius, however you want to pronounce it, uh, that's the beauty of the English language. No one knows how to pronounce anything in English. There's no standard pronunciation. This king, Darius, came, rose to power, and then God raised up two prophets to exhort the people and awaken them into obedience, Haggai and Zechariah. At least in this point in time, he raises up these two prophets. You can read about that in Ezekiel 5 and 6, Zechariah, and of course, here, this is where we come to in our story. The year is 520 before Christ. Now, it, it is impossible to view this chapter in a detailed manner, especially after such a long introduction that I've just given. But I want to look at this chapter by way of three major sections, the three sections that we see here. I titled them Assessment, Admonishment, and Awakening. Assessment, Admonishment, and Awakening. We learn something of how the Lord draws near to his people to correct them. And to stir them to obedience. This is what we see in the, in, the, in the passage. Let's start with the first point, assessment. Now, there had not been a true prophetic word in Jerusalem for decades. We know about the exilic prophets, you know, like uh, Ezekiel and Daniel. But in the land, there had not been a prophetic word for many years. And finally, the word of the Lord arrives. And it comes literally in the Hebrew by the hand of Haggai. The covenant Lord draws near. Now, we know next to nothing about Haggai himself, where he comes from, what his lineage is. But like many of God's servants, he just seems to pop up out of nowhere, fulfill his duty, and then fall back into obscurity. Personally, I love that. <laughs> who this character is is not important. Who we are is not ultimately important in the sense of, you know, we, we are not anybody, right? It is God. God is the protagonist of this story. God is the hero of the book of Haggai. Haggai is only God's divine postman delivering the message. And as we'll see, the Lord is active throughout all this passage. And the first thing the Lord brings is his appraisal. He evaluates his people. Now keep in mind, the, the same one doing the assessing here is the same one in the book of Revelation. The one with the eyes like a flame of fire who perfectly sees and inspects his people. The Lord comes like the house inspecting priest of Levit Leviticus 14. The Lord comes to inspect his house. And God's word first comes to the leadership, to Zerubbabel, who was the Davidic heir, the Davidic descendant. He would have been king had they not been under another nation. And the word of the Lord also comes to Joshua, the high priest of the Le Levitical line. So here we have all three offices represented, prophet, priest, and king, after such a long time. And again, similar to the book of Revelation, Jesus, you know, Jesus there in Revelation, when he speaks to his churches, he first describes and identifies himself. He says something about himself, something about his attributes, and then he gives the church his message. We have the same thing here. God first comes to his people through Haggai, and he identifies himself in verse 1 as the Lord of hosts. This title is used 14 times in Haggai. It's very important. Literally in the Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of ar the armies, probably a reference to the armies of angels or heavenly beings. This is a royal title that denotes his sovereign power, 
in heaven and on earth. And this, this is translated as uh, the Lord Almighty in the New Testament and in some versions uh, in, in the Old Testament as well. The Lord Almighty in some translations. So the first thing God does is remind his people of who he is. This is the second year of the reign of King Darius. And in the second year of this sovereign, the real sovereign comes to his people and speaks to them and reminds them of who is really in control. The king of glory addresses his subjects. Now, this alone should have made the people stop and even tremble. This this should have made them listen with the utmost fear and reverence. The Lord is coming to you. The Lord of hosts. If you have time, even today, meditate on what that means. The Lord of hosts. Now, secondly, the Lord comes and he brings his indictment. You know, the Lord has a unique way of speaking to us like no other person, no other one can speak to us. When Adam sins, how does he address Adam? He says, where are you? Now, you don't think the Lord knew where Adam was. He, he knew, where, obviously, he knew where he was. Or when Saul is persecuting the church. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You don't think he knew why Saul was persecuting him? When God speaks to us, he has a way of drawing out what's in our hearts. And he speaks to us in such a way that it will make us reflect upon what's in our hearts. And here he does the same in verse 2. Notice first what he says at the beginning of his message. This people says, not my people, this people. Not that the Jews were not his covenant people, but we see a distancing here. Similar to how God spoke to Moses. This people, I've had, I've had it up to here with this people. They, they're doing something wrong. This people says. And then he starts off by repeating something that they, they had been saying. Presumably they had been saying to one another for years. He says, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, in the New King James, it might sound a little awkward. There's redundancy. The time has not come. The time. Uh, but that more literally reflects the Hebrew. There is a, a Hebrew phrase that's kind of difficult to... It was Hebrew colloquialism that's kind of difficult to translate into English. Uh, it literally would be kind of something like, not yet time... Uh, not yet in time for building, not yet in time, something like that. But the point here is that God starts off by repeating what they had been saying. Have you ever been speaking with somebody and you said something really dumb and then the person you're talking to just repeats what you're, you've been saying, repeats it right back to you just to show you how utterly ridiculous you sound? Well, I, I think that's the idea here. God is repeating back to them what they have been saying. He's saying, just listen to yourselves. What are you saying? I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord Almighty. I had spoken through the prophets declaring what would happen. I raised up Cyrus. I brought you back into the land. I provided for your every need. I gave you every resource you needed to rebuild my house. I providentially worked out every detail. I handed everything to you on a silver platter. I set up the shop for you. All you had to do was just trust me and rebuild. But you caved into temptation. Now, to this, they may have replied, but, but we were opposed by, by all these peoples. We had enemies. Well, when has God's people not been opposed? Hostility from our enemies is never a free pass to, dis to disobedience. In fact, it is a test of faith. Will you trust me? What we've been learning about in the first hour, you know, tr trusting the Lord in spite of opposition, in our in our trials, trusting in the Lord. Everything pointed to the fact that this was God's perfect timing. This was God's revealed will. 
God's word, providence. All they had to do was obey. And yet they had the gall to say that it wasn't time yet. Now, what was their problem? Were they so obtuse that they just couldn't realize what God was so, so clearly showing to his people? No. The problem was their unbelieving hearts. The Lord, through repeating back this phrase, exposes the fact that they really didn't want to obey. And worse, they were making excuses. And they were making excuses that sounded so very spiritual. They couldn't just admit, well, you know, I don't want to build a, build a temple right now. They, they couldn't just say temple. They had to say the Lord's house. You know, they couldn't just say God. They had to say Yahweh. They had to call upon the covenant name of God. And they couldn't just own up to their rebellion. They had to lay the responsibility on God. Essentially, what they're saying in this expression is, we want to rebuild, but God doesn't. It, the time hasn't arrived yet. It's not God's perfect, perfectly, perfect, sovereign appointed time. Brethren, these were hyper Calvinists. They were laying the responsibility on God. And they couldn't just say no. They had to say not yet. Notice that. It wasn't no, I don't want to rebuild. Not yet. They were procrastinators. We may be reminded of the words of a young Augustine before he was converted. Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. In other words, I want to enjoy my selfishness right now. I, I want to enjoy my own selfish desires now, uh, now and later I will be holy. When you put it off for another day, putting off obedience for tomorrow. I'm also reminded of the words of J.C. Ryle. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's. There's so many people that say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get it done tomorrow. I'll obey tomorrow. I'll get right with God tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow is the devil. Tomorrow may never come. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And if you're already saved, now is the day, as I'll mention later, now is the day to build up God's holy temple. So they are demonstrating a delayed obedience and delayed obedience is disobedience. As all you parents know very well. So next here we see his admonishment. This is found in verses 3 through 11. To the claim that it wasn't the right time, God responds with a scathing, with scathing irony. In verse 4 he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? In other words, so it's not the right time to build up my house, but it is the time to build up your own houses? Oh, you wise discerners of the time? That's a very convenient position to take. It's not, God, it's not God's time yet, it's, but it's our time right now. This reference to paneled houses is probably a reference to wooden panels on the walls and perhaps covering the houses. It is fine, uh, fine decor reserved for wealthy and privileged people, royalty even. Now you may ask, you, know, you, you, you may, reading this passage and considering this passage, you may ask, well, it seems like these people were going through economic hardships. How did they have the resources to have nice paneled houses? Well, that's an interesting thing that we can consider. In the book of Ezra, when they came back 15 years prior, they had an abundance of resources and they had enough even to hire uh, masons and carpenters to bring back cedar from Lebanon. And all this was designated for the temple, at least primarily for the temple. But then they stopped building the temple. So what happened to all that wood? And what happened to all those other treasures? Well, we can put two and two together. They may have been using the very treasures and materials reserved for the temple on themselves. And that sounds shocking. And that you know, we, we can be very quick to 
point out their sin and to say, that's horrible. How can they do this? How can they dare do this? But don't we do the same, brethren? Don't we sometimes use God's resources on ourselves? God's time, His money, what He has given us? If I'm not mistaken, today's a Super Bowl, right? Uh, Super Bowl Sunday. I don't really follow football. Uh, even professing Christians today will, you know, they've been giving a lot of their time and their money and their resources to this occasion. You know, I'm not saying it's bad to watch a football game. I'm not saying it's sinful or all that. But I'm, I'm talking about what are we investing in our time and what God has given us. So what are we focusing on the most? Entertainment has its place. God has given us things to freely enjoy. That's, that's not sinful. But what are our priorities? Are we utilizing God's resources in a right way? And I don't have all the answers. I don't know where the, the fine line is. You know, How far we can go. I don't even want to know how far we can go that way into you know, entertainment. But we know, we know when, when we've been mis- misusing God's time. We know in our conscience. We, we, we feel in our conscience. And these people had misplaced priorities. And we see also in verse 9. He says in the, in the latter part of the verse, he says, Because of my house that is, that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. He's exposing the attitude of, of this people. They were very quick to take care of their own houses. Very quick to take care of their own things, their own homes, their own families. They were running toward these things. But they were very slow to take care of God's house. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get God wrong here in Haggai. God is not telling us, don't take care of your own house. Don't neglect your own house. That's not, you know, He's not telling us to, to neglect our own house. But he is saying, don't neglect the weightier matters, or to use the words of Jesus. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And so God tells him here in verses 5 and 7, consider your ways. We have this repetition. Consider your ways. When God repeats something, it's important. This literally means set your heart on your ways. Give careful thought. Give careful meditation on your ways. What are you doing? Where are you going? What is your conduct? He, he doesn't just tell them, listen to yourselves. He's, he's telling them, look at yourselves. Look at your lives. Reflect upon your lives. Think on yourselves. Has the Lord ever spoken to you in this way? Have you ever been running after something that is not the Lord's will and then God just stops you? I'm not saying you hear an audible voice. I'm saying the Spirit in your heart Something stops you and you are like, what what, what, what am I doing? It's like God telling you, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, my child? Turn back. This is what God is telling them. Consider your life. It's a call for self-reflection, examination. Examine your attitude, your conduct, your words. And I believe this is also a call to consider the outcome of our conduct. And here, the conduct of, of, the, of these people. The passage points out here their, their dire economic condition, their rampant poverty. In verse 6, we're told that you know, their crops wouldn't yield fruit. They had insufficient food, drink, clothing. Their money went, you know, went away as fast as it came in. It's like they had a bag with holes in it. I take that metaphorically speaking. They didn't have much money. They didn't have much. They had used up the resources that they did have. And now they didn't have any. We're also told in verses 10 and 11 that there was drought upon the land. It's as if the heavens were made of brass. There was a drought in all their labor. Everything they did turned into frustration. Chasing after the wind. It was like the book of Ecclesiastes. It it came alive in their lifetimes. In a very particular sense. And to their very particular circumstances. 
And if you read Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, you'll see that the very same language is, is used in those passages, speaking of the curse that would come upon the people. Let me just read a few verses from Deuteronomy 28, 28, 38 through 40. It says here, You shall carry much seed out, out to the field, but gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourselves with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. Similar language. I, I could read many parts of, of that chapter in Leviticus 26. Basically, what was happening is that they were beginning to experience the covenant curses. And this should have put the, the fear of God into them. Because the very reason they were exiled to Babylon was their rebellion, their sin. They're turning away from their Lord and Master. And now they were starting to relive what they had lived before. It should have caused them to seriously consider, what am I doing? We need to stop right away. We don't want to go back into that lesson that we learned. We, we, we thought we graduated from that school. You don't graduate from God's school, He'll send you right back. You don't learn to be content in your circumstances, He'll give you another series of negative circumstances and He'll teach you contentment. And so... The people should have been awakened, and they, and they are, as, as we'll see here. But also, we, we see God's gracious hand uh, and His love here towards His people, because He is lovingly warning His people, and He directly points out the agent of their discipline, namely Himself. In verse 11, He says, I am the one, basically, He says, for I did it. I called for a drought on the land. I am the one doing this to you, but it's not for your condemnation. I do not desire for you to be accursed. He wanted to awaken them. The people were undergoing God's discipline and He is lovingly warning them so that they would turn back. These people acted like they, they could rightly interpret the times, but they couldn't even discern that they were undergoing the discipline of God. I, th I find that ironic. And I find it ironic as well that they were undergoing these serious hardships, but it, instead of seeing them as God's hand calling them to turn back, these hardships caused them to become even more self-absorbed. And they, in fact, they used them as an excuse to keep focusing on themselves. Well, you know, I don't have enough money. I have to focus on my family. I don't have enough crops. We, we, need, we don't have enough to build up the Lord's house anyway. But they didn't have enough because of their sin. Because they were undergoing God's discipline. They, they should have considered uh, God's discipline and this should have made them reflect on their ways. should have caused them to turn. All of this was designed to do what verse 8 says. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, repent. Repent and do the first works. See where you have fallen and turn back. Go back. And seek His pleasure and seek His glory. I, I, this is a glorious verse, verse 8. Do not seek your own selfish pleasure. Don't be a lover of pleasure. Be a lover of God and God's pleasure. You see, it's not about not seeking pleasure. We are to pursue pleasure as God's people. The Christian life is not some stoic pursuit of abstract knowledge. It is a passionate pursuit of the Lord Himself and that which pleases Him. You don't combat sin with just not sinning. That in and of itself is at least belongs to the category of legalism. It's part of legalism. How do we, how do we deny ourselves? Well, just don't sin. No, that's, that's not going to help you. 
You battle passion with passion. You battle desire with desire. How do you battle sinful desires with a desire for the Lord? How do you, how do you battle sinful passions with a passion for the glory of God? With a passion to know the Lord? With a passion to be with Him? With a passion to see His glory? To experience His love? With a passion to be filled with the Holy Spirit? To know God. You will never be satisfied when you are seeking your own passions, your selfish desires. And in verse 6, we're told that the people were always dissatisfied. Nothing was enough. Not food, not drink, not clothing. It would never warm them. But I, I do wonder if this verse is also speaking in a metaphorical way. Speaking of the fact that none of the things that they did seemed to satisfy them. Because they were pursuing their own kingdoms, their own house. In any case, it teaches us, or could teach us here, that you know our, our own pursuits of our own selfish desires, they will always leave us empty. We need the fountain of living water to be satisfied. We need the Lord Himself. And so we come to the last part of the of the passage. Verses 12 to 15, awakening. Awakening. We see very clearly that the people respond to God's assessment of their lives and his very pointed admonishment. Here in verse 12, we see that starting with the leadership all the way down to all the remnant of the people, they repent. And in verse 12, it tells us that they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. Now stop for a moment and notice this. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. Have they started rebuilding the temple? Not yet until verse 14. They hadn't done anything, and yet it says they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. How can it say that if they haven't done anything? Well, in verse 14, it also tells us that they came and worked. Oh, sorry, in the, uh, the other part of verse 12, it tells us uh, the people feared the presence of the Lord. It's, it's, it's giving us a, a picture of their hearts. God can say that they obeyed even before they did anything because he sees their hearts. He sees that they have repentant hearts. Repentance starts with a change of mind and a change of heart. And God does see our intentions. And there are, there are many times in which we, we want to do so many things for the Lord, but we are hindered by so many things that are out of our control. It's not because of our disobedience. It's not because of our rebellion. And God sees our intentions. The Lord, remember, He is the one with the eyes of fire. He sees our hearts. These people came to the Lord or they responded to the Lord with surrendered hearts, with reverent fear. God counted that as obedience. This is what he wants. So the people start to work. And the, the, the word of the Lord had come in the first day of the month. And now it tells us in verse 15, they began working on the 24th day. There is a national revival. The covenant people are awakened and finally set themselves to please the Lord and seek after His glory rather than their own. And there's something that we must not miss in this passage. Why did the people obey? Why did they obey the Lord? We're told in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the people. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. It was the Lord that did it. It was God doing this from beginning to end. It was God who drew near to the people. It was God who raised up Haggai. It was God who analyzed, evaluated his people. It was God who spoke to his people what they were living and rebuked them. And it was a God who produced repentance in them. That This is glorious. God's work in our lives is His work from beginning to end. He works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. How is it that we can actually do works that actually please Him in Christ? Because, well, first we are in Christ. 
And secondly, He's the one who's doing it. And He who began a good work in us will complete it, will finish it. We can be assured of that. This is amazing. The same Lord that rebukes us is the Lord that encourages us and lifts us us up. When we are wallowing in our misery and in our sin, and we come to God in repentant hearts, He he produced that repentance in us. And then He lifts us up. He gets us back up and He sets us on on the path of perseverance. Moreover, we have this glorious promise in verse 13. Not only does God chastise us in His love, discipline us in His love, rebuke us tenderly in His love, get us back up, but He, he, he encourages our hearts with His promises. Here we have the, the, the amazing promises of the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. When the people have set their hearts to obey, God encouraged them saying, I am with you. The people were brought low, but God does not leave them low. When they turn their gaze to Him, He assures them of His nearness. I am with you is a covenant promise that is found all throughout the Scriptures. And it speaks basically of His presence and power and blessing and aid and assistance and His steadfast love and His faithfulness toward His people. He is with us. Can there be a greater promise than God Himself. God with His people. God Himself. And so, when you, dear brother or sister, when you, when you fall into sin, by all means, repent. Grieve over your sin. Mourn over your sin. But you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay wallowing in your misery You can turn your gaze. You must turn your gaze to the Lord. You must look unto Him. He commands you to look to Him. When you have fallen into into sin, the Lord delights in forgiving you and cleansing you and getting you back up and assuring your heart with promises like this one. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. In fact, you must come boldly before the throne of grace when you have fallen. You may not feel like coming before the Lord, but that is the precise time in which you need to come before the Lord. And He is with you. He is with you when you fall. He is with you when you get back up. He is with you to get you back up. Please understand, I'm not justifying sin at all. By no means. But I'm just stating the truth. God is with us. If you are in Christ, He is with you. And I want to finish our study of this text by also pointing out that this passage has direct relevance to us in another sense. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are the temple of the living God. As the New Testament tells us, Christ himself is the temple. God himself came down. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us dwelt this word dwelt literally means tabernacled alluding to the old testament tabernacle in the wilderness emmanuel came god with us god took on a human nature god came and dwelt among us he came among us to redeem a sinful people through his perfect life through his, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, dying in the place of sinners, bearing our judgment, bearing the curse. He was made a curse for us. Rising from the grave. And Jesus himself had said during his earthly ministry, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He is the temple of the living God. And if you repent and believe in him, he saves you. And when He saves you, you are united to Christ. And if you are united to Christ, you are part of this end-time temple. You are the temple of the living God. The church is called the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we are united with Christ. And the promises that are yes and amen in Christ apply to us as well. And we are to seek the edification of this temple. Just as the people here had to build up the house of God, we are called to build up one another. 
We are called to seek to build up. We are living stones being built up upon one another. Christ himself is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation on top of this cornerstone. Then we are built on top of it. This is a a long-term building project that we have been given the privilege to partake of. How are we doing in this task? Are we seeking to edify the body of Christ? Are we seeking to build up the temple? Are we seeking to do what God does here? Imitate God's example here. Coming to one another. If we see sin in one another, exhorting one another in love. Calling each other to uh, uh, to self-reflection, self-examination. Being accountable to one another. Reminding one another of who God is. The way God reminds His people here. I am the Lord of hosts. Are we seeking to remind one another? He is the Lord of hosts. You might be struggling. You might be going through some very, very difficult circumstance. You might be persecuted. You might be, you know, being made fun of at work or facing some kind of problem for the sake of Christ. Remember who God is. He is the Lord of hosts and He is with you. The Lord of glory, the Lord of the universe is with you. And Jesus Christ Himself gives us this promise in Matthew 28. Remember what He told His disciples? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He commands them to partake of this temple building project. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've given to you. He gives them the same task. And He promises us His presence. How are we doing with this? Are we seeking to build up the body of Christ? May the Lord give us the grace to do what this passage tells us. Seek to build up God's temple by encouraging one another and also you know, preaching the Gospel. That's how we expand this, this temple that's how this temple grows. God makes disciples. God uses us to save somebody and that person becomes part of this temple. And may the Lord give us the grace to do what Ephesians 5:15 and 16 says. Look carefully. Notice how similar this language is to Haggai chapter 1. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. May we be like certain men of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Namely, that it's time. Now is the time to build up Christ's temple. Now. Not tomorrow. Now. What can we do to edify the body of Christ? That's something that I want to leave you with. May we, like Christ, burn with zeal for His Father's house.